The atypical feature of my near-death experience was that I was amnesic. Consciousness is not created by the brain at all. Before my coma, would gladly tell you that no one has free will. You know, it's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain. We share the mind of the universe, that God force. That's what people in NDEs come in touch with. That's what they identify with. That's why they come back to this world not fearing death. Dr. Alexander, I want to thank you for being here. As I mentioned, uh, I've seen a lot in the comment section from listeners that you know have mentioned your name, and that's why I looked into you. And I thought uh, my audience alone, let alone everyone else that you connect to in the world, it's a very important conversation, an interesting conversation. And the bridge between science and spirituality always gets me interested because from a, a layman's non educated person as, as well as you are when it comes to science and whatnot and your own experience, you know, I think it bridges, you know, science is very evidence-based, you know what I mean? When and, and a little bit more objective when it comes to the research. And then when you bridge something like spirituality, which, you know, can go either way, the way people perceive it, it's really interesting to me. And with your experience, as I'm heard, I'm sure you've heard a million times, being a neurosurgeon and having this, ex this spiritual experience, that bridge to me is an outlet for I don't know, I'm in lack of better words, just finding that proof of life or no, no pun intended, actually. And um, I, I'm just so fascinated hearing your story and connecting the bridge between science and spirituality and what you went through. Well, great to be talking with you about exactly that, because uh, the interesting thing is as a neuroscientist, I can tell you that science is right at the heart of this kind of awakening and understanding, uh, and yet you cannot deny the, the kind of spirituality of it. And the spirituality for me is not just a reflection of any kind of religious ideology, uh, but spirituality can very simply be a, a product of both our sense of connectedness through mind with the universe at large and with each other, as well as a sense of shared meaning and purpose. You don't need any specific uh, ideologies on top of that, just kind of meaning, purpose, and connectedness. Uh, and that's what the science of consciousness reveals about uh, the nature of humanity in the current era. So it's a very exciting time to be alive and to, to see this whole kind of awakening and, and revolution unfolding. Wow. Okay. Hot start. Love it. All right. So, and, and a lot of things we're going to speak about for everyone listening, um, you know, Dr. Alexander has several books out there. And so you can tap into what we're going to talk to in an expanded way through there. So if you have read his book, it might be a little bit redundant, but regardless, I'm, I'm so grateful to hear it from your mouth. So your experience was, it was in 2008 where you had, you, you know, you were in a coma and then you had this quote unquote near death experience, right? Right. It was November 2008, uh, you know, and up until then, I'd spent 54 years of my life owning a very conventional scientific worldview, you know, believing that our existence was birth to death, nothing more, uh, that the brain created consciousness, you know, all those myths that are uh, perpetrated by the uh, kind of conventional uh, and outmoded scientific arm of, of reductive materialism. So the, the more modern quantum-informed conscious um, science of consciousness is what really leads us in a powerful direction. But, uh, you know, I was yet to discover every bit of that through my journey. But uh, my journey showed me in a deep and profound personal way uh, that consciousness is not created by the brain at all. The brain is a filter, reducing valve, a transceiver. It allows uh, for this primordial mind to kind of give us an eddy current of consciousness that we perceive as kind of our individual consciousness. And yet, the science of all this is headed in a direction that greatly emphasizes the, the connectedness that we all share through that mental realm. And that's really the important thing. The deepest lesson of near-death experiences and of other expressions of non-local consciousness, especially when viewed through the lens of near-death experiences as kind of our main teacher, uh, really points out this connectedness of mind, this binding force of love is very kind of healing and powerful for individuals as well as for all of humanity at large. And that that was the real uh, kind of surprise about my journey, and yet it's taken me 15 years since that coma experience uh, to really start to polish, you know, a scientific worldview that makes sense. But it involves a rethinking of quantum physics, of the hard problem of consciousness and neuroscience, of um, 
the binding problem in uh, philosophy of mind, the apparent unity of consciousness with an individual, and also all those examples of non-local consciousness from the world of parapsychology, like telepathy, remote viewing, distance healing. All of these things are expressions of that one mind that's much greater than our individual minds, but in an everyday way that it presents itself to us. And this is where notions of free will and everything can really take off because the reductive materialism, the science that I studied before my coma, would gladly tell you that no one has free will. You know, it's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain. Pay it no mind, they would say. Well, they're completely wrong. And that's where my journey and and plus the support that I've received from the scientific community at large over the last 15 years very much supports a complete shift in our worldviews, 180-degree flip to acknowledging the primacy of mind or uh, essentially really the, the primacy of connected spirit. That's the energy that we share, and that's what uh, the modern science of consciousness so fully supports. This is, I'm sure, a a big reason as to your appeal to everyone besides your incredible story is that you, you, again, bridge that gap between science and spirituality on a topic that I'm always aware of its, you know, its split in many ways. I don't know what the percentage of believers and non-believers are out there, but just from my own experience from the stories that I've shared on here and reading, and uh, which is a bad rabbit hole to hold to go to go to is read the comments section but you see so many uh, a little bit of a divisiveness in regards to believing and 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 people from all sorts of walks of life expound that's bs this or that this and the other that's why it's so fascinating when you explain your background as a neurosurgeon and you even admitted to your conventional thinking on this topic and how it was shifted. So to me, that just adds, you know, a different level of credibility and not to discredit anyone that I've spoke to or any other near-death experiences on paper. It just gives a very unique perspective to your experience, if that makes sense. And so when you said the last, I want to get into your story, if you don't mind, I know you've told it before, but I would love to explain to the audience that hasn't listened to you what happened in 2008 exactly and what you actually experienced under your coma. But real quickly, before we tap into that, that, what is that that 15 years of you putting pieces together and understanding it more? Are you just explaining there's there's more to the story that you're recollecting or it's literally just a a study-based approach of what you experienced? Well, for one thing, I meditate an hour or two a day. I've been doing that for more than 11 years now. And I've used meditation to get back into my near-death experience, not just to recover memories, but to invigorate and enliven my relationships with the various kind of guides and denizens of that realm. And that's a story told not just in the book Proof of Heaven and in the Map of Heaven, but especially in the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, that was co-written with my life partner, Karen Newell, uh, who is the founder of Sacred Acoustics. And people can go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more, but that's a form of binaural beat brainwave entrainment. Uh, binaural beats are a way of uh, basically influencing the lower brainstem in very powerful ways that seem to be liberating conscious awareness away from the illusion of here, now, and sense of self. And so a lot of my work has been in using this form of meditation in meditation play shops that Karen and I have offered uh, around the world by Zoom and in person. Uh, but in these, uh, in these uh, meditation workshops, the interesting thing is people start to have profound experiences through the meditation. And, and it's such that I will tell you that you don't have to have a near-death experience uh, to come to know much of what I know about the reality of those realms. You can cultivate that through meditation. That's one of the most important lessons of that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is that this kind of uh, spiritual adventure is uh, open to any and all of us who are conscious uh, and doesn't demand that you have a near-death experience. And of course, we talk in there also about the many other ways people tend to drive these experiences. For example, psychedelic plant medicines, entheogens, psilocybin, LSD, DMT. People use those substances to serve as a catalyst And although I'm very happy that the research into those fields is open now because I think it's revealing a lot about what we can do and what we have power to do in our own health and healing, uh, sadly, we do see some people getting sucked into that kind of black hole of, uh, say, forever ayahuasca journeys or something like that 
Whereas I think uh, that meditation is a much cleaner and more powerful way to ultimately get in touch with that primordial soul. Uh, and even though, yes, uh, if you know you have tremendous balance in your kind of spiritual and mental and emotional essence, you might try some of those psychedelics and it might give you some spiritual insight. I think the important point is that a more steady and progressive road of meditation is a better way of getting res reliable results and connection there. And that's really what a lot of our work, a lot of our talks, a lot of our pre presentations are really about that theme, about kind of harvesting that binding force of love. And, and I'll remind people, you know, as you were saying earlier, that, you know, people can come down on all sides of this uh, discussion. But remember that there, there's this process called programmed forgetting, where certain pieces of knowledge are just not meant to be readily carried back from those kinds of journeys. And I realized early on that much of what I experienced there, I could never put into words. And so the best I could do would be to encourage other people to engender similar states of kind of mental awareness through meditation and centering prayer so they could experience the same things. And it's important to get that these realms have a great uh, kind of aspect of reality. And the reason that we can't just rely purely on neuroscience, for example, to investigate them comes, uh, for example, in some of the papers that we discussed in, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And these were the papers over the last decade that have looked at um, entheogens like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and their influence on the brain. The interesting point that I'm making here is that each and every one of these papers shows the brain goes dark under the influence of such uh, plant medicines like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, which is the active principle in ayahuasca. No part of the brain is increasing in activity. Every bit of it is diminishing. And in fact, the default mode network, which is kind of your kind of uh, ego, here I am, uh, you know, existing mode of, of, of brain networking, it dissolves under the influence of such plant medicines. So as a neuroscientist, if you're interested in finding out how those plant medicines work, the thing you cannot do is pretend that it's by looking at the brain magnetic encephalography, functional MRI, because all these things just so the brain's getting out of the way. It's not doing the doing of those fantastic, phenomenal experiences. It is simply removing itself from the equation. I knew what that was like in a big sense because of what meningitis had done to me. It had got rid of my neocortex, damaged my brainstem. That's what allowed for such a profound, robust journey, which is validated in a medical case report medical, on my medical records that came out September 2018, Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, that case report by three doctors not involved in my care but fascinated by my recovery uh, went light years beyond where I went in proof of heaven to make the case that my brain was in no shape to harbor any kind of dream or hallucination, much less the most profound experience of my life. And not only that, the peer reviewers at the journal challenged the doctors, how do you explain this case? It's unprecedented in the medical literature that somebody this sick from bacterial meningoencephalitis of weakened coma with the kind of lab values and neurologic exam values I had, who then makes a full recovery. And when challenged, the three authors said it's because he had a near-death experience that this unprecedented recovery was allowed to happen. And the peer reviewer said, yeah, okay, that explains it. And they published it. But they knew of other cases, similar cases in the NDE literature, uh, where people like uh, Nita Morjani uh, getting rid of her stage four advanced lymphoma, Dr. Mary C. Neal, who uh, thrived after an over 30-minute warm water drowning. I mean, these are horrible cases that uh, any doctor looks at the medical records and say, well, that's it, they're doomed. And yet we all came back and we all had profound near-death experiences. You know, it's important to look at cases of healing that goes beyond medical expectation because there are tremendous clues to all of us there about how healing works and coming into wholeness. And when you realize that it has everything to do with that love and that kindness and compassion and that sense of, of, of uh, togetherness and spiritual home that people have in a spiritual near-death experience, that starts to explain the power and why it's important for all of us to learn much more about all this.
So there was a lot in what you said that um, before we go into your, you know, your actual experience, I took a note in regards to that. One of the last things you said about the interest that the scientific community took in your case because of how quickly you recovered and, and the unexplainability of you healing and talking to me today. And they just alluded it to, uh, it must have been a near-death experience. Was that just opening the door, like you said, use the word clues? So there's no actual fundamental objective evidence right now that says this is the case yet? Is that part of this entire journey that you're doing of finding that objectivity? Is that objectivity even possible? Uh, well, objectivity is very possible. And that's why the, the whole discussion of the peer review of that article and the publication of that article makes so much sense. It basically is telling you that the medical facts of this case are so strong. You know, there's no way that this that I just happened to luck into this uh, complete recovery over two months from a disease that had never really allowed people to recover before. And the medical facts are very, very supportive of kind of the reality of our spiritual nature and of our power to uh, engender healing and coming into wholeness in our own lives. So I think that's why, you know, when I work with scientific groups around the world, for example, scientificandmedical.net or galileocommission.org, these are all groups of that, um, th those two are based in Europe, but I work with groups in the United States, uh, the Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia. People can go to uvadops.org to learn a lot more about that group. And also the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dean Radin and all of his work out in California. You know, we collaborate with uh, all these scientists. And I must say, for example, the, the uh, proof of the impact of, of Proof of Heaven, that book published in 2012, was delineated by a neuroscientist when we were at a meeting in Belgium in 2018. And uh, that neuroscientist showed that there had been a fourfold uptick, a fourfold increase in the number of papers on near-death experiences written every year around the world after Proof of Heaven came out in 2012, compared to the 32 years before that publication. Uh, and that fourfold increase is very dramatic. Uh, and that's in scientific papers addressing NDEs. Uh, not only that, for example, there was a tremendous contest held in 2021 uh, Robert Bigelow, uh, and he challenged the scientific community, what's the best scientific evidence for continuity of consciousness after permanent bodily death? And the 29 winning essays in that contest are available for free to the reading public now. All 29 of those essays is an absolute uh, stellar kind of damning of materialist science and its pathetic attempts to pretend that the brain creates consciousness and that the physical world is all that exists. So people can go to BigelowInstitute.org, start with Jeffrey Mishlaw's first lit place paper, and you'll start realizing that the scientific evidence supporting the reality, not only of the afterlife, but of reincarnation, is already so strong that once you study it, you realize it's real, and then we have to move on to how to understand it. And, you know, quantum physicists have been screaming this at us for the better part of a century, that consciousness is fundamental, that there's something primary about mind, that it's not simply created by the brain. Uh, and that mind seems to be much more unified. And that's the kind of evidence that comes out of, uh, of all of the study. But in those BigelowInstitute.org papers, for those of you really uh, seeking the hardest core scientific explanations possible, I would steer you to Pim Van Lommel's second place paper, and also to Julie Beischel and to Bernardo Kastrup. Uh, from my perspective, all three of those papers are very powerful scientific papers. I think Jeffrey Mishlov's in an incredible tour de force, his first place uh, winning essay. Uh, and of course, the others all take uh, different angles on this question. But once you start reading them, you realize it's already beyond any scientific doubt of the reality of the afterlife and of reincarnation. But now we need to figure out how it works. And on the note of reincarnation, important to point out, as I said earlier, there is this process of programmed forgetting. So most of us, we hear this about reincarnation, we go, wait a minute, I don't remember any past lives. But that's because they are covered over by natural processes. Dr. Ian Stevenson, Dr. Jim Tucker, these are the scientists who for the last six decades at University of Virginia have conducted this research of more than 2,700 
uh, cases of past life memories in children of whom 1,700 are solved. That is, they actually identified the person as truly existing and were able to track down details of their life and compare it to the child's stories. And once you read that literature, you realize, of course, reincarnation is real. Uh, and as Jim Tucker and, and Ian Stevenson will tell you, you have to harvest those memories before age six or seven because those memories are covered over in most of us. Even in children who have been well identified in this process of having past life memories by age eight or nine, uh, they often can't remember any of it. Now, it can be they can memories can be recovered through hypnotic regression, through having a near-death experience. It allows you to remember uh, memories from a much earlier time that you might not have had memory of before. Meditation is a great way to get to these past life memories, et cetera. But that's the important ingredient that people have to understand is that uh, there are many reports of past life memories in children. And when you start to investigate them, you find that a lot of them line up with somebody who actually lived. And uh, with a lot of these really young children who are talking about these issues from the first day they can talk, you know, you got to wonder where in the world they, they get this information. And they got it because these are personal lived memories of their life experience from previous life. Oh, man. The, the idea of reincarnation just like it's uh, I, I, was, I, I love your answers. And, I, and I, my questions are to elicit those responses because. You know, like I said, from the people that listen to these stories, there's people that don't believe it. And I'm not forcing that either way. If people don't believe it, that's that's cool. Believe whatever you want. But it's interesting to me because you come from such a scientific uh, and you're in such a specific background that it just makes so much sense. So I think people are on the edge of their seat that are listening right now for the last uh, 25 minutes or so, because I, I would love to, we're kind of working backwards a little bit, but would you mind tapping into a little bit more detail on what you experienced in 2008 so we can kind of go there and then back to everything you've been saying, if you could share your experience. Absolutely. And one thing I want to clarify about the reincarnation, because people worry that a loved one would reincarnate, you know, before they pass over. They want their loved one to welcome them across. And what I will tell you is from my experience, especially witnessing what's called deep time, uh, where all of your life can be in front of you simultaneously, what that is showing you is you are completely into a different temporal flow of causality. And so, in other words, the most important thing in this discussion is love and the connection with our loved ones. That is never violated by any kind of paradoxical, you know, oh, they reincarnated before I got there. That doesn't happen. Uh, that's a very important thing for people to understand in this whole reincarnation process. And we can dive into that much more later, but I'd like to get to your original question here about my experience, if you want. Please. Okay. 4.30 in the morning, November 10th, 2008, I woke up with horrific back pain, headache, was soon grand mal seizures, lapsing into coma. Uh, my family was very concerned, called the EMTs to our house. Uh, I was gone from this world for the next seven days. I remember absolutely nothing. And that includes the EMTs getting to our house and trying to break the seizures. There's a myth out in the uh, lay press around my case that pretends that I had a medically induced coma. That is not true at all. In fact, if you read Dr. Bruce Grayson's uh, autobiography, it's called After. Chapter 10 is devoted to my case. Bruce Grayson has spent more than four and a half decades studying uh, near-death experiences as a skeptical scientist. And uh, he studied my case in great detail. He was one of the authors of that uh, case report. But the uh, interesting thing is that uh, uh, he um, basically says that I went into coma before I had any sedating medications, and I came out of coma while I was still on full doses of those sedating medications. So the sedation is not it. And that's why the scientific community pays so much attention to my story, is because the mode of the coma, the meningitis, it's a perfect model for human death. And uh, it's mainly because all lobes of my brain were impacted, my brain stem was affected, and once that dramatic evidence for the damage to my brain is, is spelled out in that case report, it makes it clear that that brain could not have had a dream or hallucination, uh, and much less the most profound, uh, detailed experience ever. And that's what I went through. Now, briefly, I'd like to share the stages of that. Um, 
And it's important to point out that I was uh, an atypical feature of my near-death experience was that I was amnesic, that I had no memories of Evan Alexander's life, no knowledge of this universe, of humanity, no language. Every bit of that was gone. And I think that empty slate was very important for some of the lessons I was to learn. But it is an unusual feature. You don't often find that kind of complete amnesia for life during an NDE. And of course, when I first came back to this world, when my neuroscience memories were still not back, but I knew from talking to my doctors that I had a severe case of meningitis, I thought, well, I guess that would explain why those memories seem to disappear, because I was still harboring the illusion that memories are stored in the brain. But we discuss in our book, Living the Mindful Universe, all the scientific evidence that memories are not stored in the brain at all. At any way, deep in this experience, the way it all started with earthworm's eye view, primitive course unresponsive realm, like I was in dirty jello, roots or blood vessels all around me. I had no body awareness at all during this phase of the journey. If I had just gone to that earthworm's eye view and come back to this world, I would have had a hellish NDE or a negative NDE. But that's not what happened. I was rescued by this slowly spinning white light that came associated with a perfect musical melody. And that white light served as a portal uh, up into this rich, ultra-real gateway valley that had many earth-like features, but was also filled with spiritual energy and features. So I was aware of my being uh, a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. Again, no body awareness. I didn't have any uh, kind of human body uh, perception whatsoever. And this was an absolutely gorgeous valley. It was kind of like Plato's world of ideals, but for the individual soul lush waterfalls into sparkling blue pools, this incredibly rich and verdant valley surrounded by forest. Uh, and the meadow was filled with thousands of beings who were dancing, joy and merriment, children playing, dogs jumping, incredible festivities, because all of it was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of pure angelic choirs, these uh, spiritual orbs leaving these sparkling golden trails against this blue-black velvety sky. And they were emanating chants and anthems, hymns, that would just thunder through my awareness. And on this butterfly wing, there were millions of other butterflies, Color is beyond the rainbow. The best thing was I wasn't alone. There was a beautiful young woman, sparkling blue eyes, high forehead, high cheekbones, broad smile. She was dressed in the same very kind of simple peasant garb as all the people down below, but also very rich colors to all of the clothing. I mean, colors really beyond the rainbow, uh, extraordinary richness of vision. Uh, and I remember the soft summer breeze that blew through that I later called in my writings the divine wind of the breath of God. That was my first knowing in that amnesic state of that infinite healing, loving, and spiritual home power of that God force that dominated that entire realm with pure love. And uh, that was... Uh, the most uh, kind of gorgeous part of the experience was experiencing that oneness, that God force, because I came to see that God force as the very origin of our conscious awareness. And I remember seeing all of that a four-dimensional space-time, the kind of apparent uh, material realm from that perspective of the spiritual realm collapsing down. And then all of the spiritual richness. And remember, this includes that whole concept of deep time or meta time, so that in the that gateway valley, you're able to witness your entire uh, life, birth to death, life reviews, including prior lifetimes, etc. So it shows you the stage on which this drama unfolds is not a simple little narrative stage like what we live through here. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to put into words these experiences. When you're in a realm where you can experience your entire existence, birth to death and everything in between and beyond, uh, you know, in a very relived fashion, that's what's called the life review, often discussed in in near-death experiences. And the most important things to realize about life reviews is Bruce Grayson reported in a summary of his experience over four and a half decades of analyzing near-death experience cases is he made it very clear uh, that uh, something like 45% or so of people, and uh, don't quote me on, on the numbers exactly, but about 45% 
feel that these experiences are more real than real, and that it's, in many cases, they feel like it's a reliving, not just a remembering. And probably one of the most important features that he points out is that it's also done from the perspective of others around you. So when you go through your life review, if you've been busy handing out pain and suffering to others, watch out, because in the life review, you get to the receiving end of that. The life review, it's like the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe. Treat others as you would like to be treated, because a hallmark of the life review, going back at least 2,400 years to the time of Plato, who wrote about the Armenian soldier Ur killed in battle. And when Ur came back to life, just before they lit up the funeral pyre, he told his fellow soldiers that when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. And not only that, you realize the only important thing was how much love you were able to bring into the world. That said 2,400 years ago. And that could be a similar story to a, a battlefield death today or to any death today. I mean, people still have these experiences in extraordinary numbers. And the more we realize what they're telling us about the eternity of soul and that we're all bound together through this force of love. And if we pay attention to that life review, what it means is we really need to treat each other as those sacred and divine beings that we all are and start following the message of the prophets and bringing love, kindness, compassion, mercy, and acceptance into the way we live these lives. And that's how we deal with ourselves in relation to the universe and how we deal with our fellow beings. And the more we can learn that golden rule from life reviews uh, and, and do daily reviews, as my partner Karen Newell puts it, why, why wait till the end of your life? And uh, what a sad thing if I'd spent my whole life as a materialist thinking it was birth to death, nothing more, and not realizing this much bigger message of the bigger aspects of soul. And that's what Karen and I are really trying to teach the world now, is get that word out about the reality of the soul connection. But getting back to my journey, because I don't want to leave that uh, too far here, we've gone into that gateway valley. The beautiful guardian angel was what happened was all of that collapsed down. Uh, and I entered what I call the core. The core was infinite inky blackness filled to overflowing with that divine love of the creator for the creation. And I realized that our very conscious awareness is sourced in that God force of pure love. So we're never separate from that at all. And that's the important thing to bring to this world. And of course, as any near-death experiencer will tell you, or most of them, I should say, is these deep dives into that spiritual realm prove to us eternity of soul, that nature of that primordial mind, how we're all truly in this together, and we're really here to take care of each other. And that is one of the deepest lessons that humanity is to learn now, is this uh, kind of synthesis of, of our kind of spiritual essence, how we're all really here to take care of each other, and that that myth of, of the false sense of separation of materialist thinking really needs to go extinct. You know, the scientific community over the last century has proven that Newtonian determinism of reductive materialism is not real. Uh, and this quantum-informed consciousness is something that really helps us to elaborate the science that shows that consciousness is fundamental, that mind has a way of organizing all the emergent reality uh, that we witness. Uh, and the more we realize that, the more we can bring our true free will, the free will of our higher soul and of this collective mind that views that binding force of love as, as crucial. Uh, we can bring all that to fruition in this revolution of scientific understanding that puts consciousness in a primary position. Now, in my own journey, what happened was I was told in that core realm, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back. Uh, but I would cycle, I would fall back down to that earth where my view. And it was by remembering the musical notes, the melody, that I originally associated with that portal that led me up into the Gateway Valley. By remembering the musical notes, that's what allowed me to conjure up that portal again. And that happened multiple times that I would uh, spontaneously tumble back down to earth from my view and then work my way back up through these musical portals through the various levels, always gaining lessons along the way uh, and uh, always being told in the core, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back. And there finally came a time when that was true. I can no longer conjure up that melody to get out of the, the earth where my view. To say I was sad would be an understatement. That's when I saw the thousands of beings going off into the distance around me, uh, this murmuring energy coming to them, which was the same 
same loving acceptance and comfort as what I'd first experienced in the in the gateway in the core realm, but now I was getting it in this lowest realm from all these beings. And I call that the power of prayer when I wrote it all up weeks later. And it was then that I saw six faces that bubbled out of the muck, said a few words, disappeared. Those faces were important. They served as veridical time anchors that helped to prove that the vast majority of the coma journey happened between days one in four or one in five. The timing for all that is explained in the in Proof of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, but in other words, it didn't all happen just when I was exiting the coma. That's the important thing to get. And then I came back to this world when I first woke up in the ICU room. And important to point out that the last face I saw uh, of those six faces was a 10-year-old boy. I didn't recognize him. And it was day seven of coma. They had protected my youngest son, Bond, 10 years old at the time. They protected him from the worst news during that week. On this final morning, he overheard the doctor's conference where they said I'd gone from 10% chance of survival to 2% with no chance of recovery. And when Bond heard that, he knew things were very bad, came running down the hallway, pulled open my eyelids, and one eye looking over there, the other over there, neither pupil working. Those in medicine know that's a horrible picture. And I didn't hear him with my ears. I didn't see him with my eyes, but he was pleading with me. Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. And somehow that made it all the way through to those deepest spiritual levels. And it was really the first time in the whole journey that I felt fear. Because until that time, because of my amnesia, I thought this is the way it is. I, I accept it. Uh, this is it. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, at the very end of the journey, that sixth face, this 10-year-old boy pleading, even though I didn't understand the words and I didn't know who he was, all of a sudden, everything mattered. I had to somehow come back to wherever this was. And that, to me, was the most frightening moment of the whole journey. And somehow, my higher soul willed my way back uh, to this realm. And when I first woke up in that ICU bed, my amnesia was still absolutely dominant. I did not even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. But I knew where I had just been. That was the only thing I knew. And then over the next two months, everything came back. In fact, memories came back more complete than they had been before the coma. And that's part of the mystery that we discuss in that third book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And important to point out to people that there is now a 10th anniversary edition of the book Proof of Heaven that has come out. And that 10th anniversary edition has 36 additional pages, which explain a whole lot more of all that's happened in the last decade since the original book came out. Oh, man. So many questions are flooding through my brain right now. This is okay. So I'm going to, for everyone listening, let me try to gather my thoughts because there was so much, that's incredible. And I, you said a speck of awareness. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to, might fire off a few different questions here. So bear with me. But when you say a speck of awareness, all this, all the lessons that you explained in regards to that we're here to take care of each other. And I, I, I'm not sure if you said it here, or I'm just, it's reflecting back to what I've heard you say in the past in regards to a lesson where we're here to learn. So all these things, all these lessons that you've taken from your experience, was this as if it was just downloaded to you in regards to it was just a knowingness? Because you said you're, you're, you know, a speck of awareness. You didn't have to feel like you had a body in this moment. So was it just as if you just, wherever, wherever you were, you just knew this stuff? It was a knowingness immediately as if you didn't even ask these questions. It's like you just uploaded all this information that was whatever, wherever the hell it is. Or sorry, I said hell. That was a terrible transition to what we're talking about. Well, a, a tremendous amount of the information works just as you are describing. Okay, and in fact, in the book Living in a Mindful Universe, we discuss in, in detail our methods for using meditation to get into deep transcendental states. And in fact, for example, my first encounter with my father's soul, my adoptive father, who had passed over four years before my coma. And if I had scripted my near-death experience, he would have been there front and center. He was the one I wanted to see. Mm. But when I saw him, I did not see him in the NDE. That was a big shocker. But my spiritual guide was this beautiful young woman. And those who read the book Proof of Heaven realize how crucial she was. But I didn't find out her identity until four months after my coma. And that has to do with my adoption story and all of that. I won't go into that now, but uh, the important thing was the fact that I didn't encounter my father in the NDE, but I did encounter him in a profound meditation where I got a thought ball. And that's exactly what you're talking about, where all the information comes, boom, it's all complete. It's not a narrative story, you know, or a, a 
something like that. It really is amazing. And yet it can take you a long time to unpack the way that information comes in. There was a lot of information I received in my near-death experience that was the same kind of thought ball material that in fact I've been unpacking and unraveling for the 15 years since my coma in deep meditation. So, uh, you know, although many things were clear to me and in fact to have the experience at all was a complete violation of everything I'd come to believe to be true about the brain and consciousness from all my training in neuroscience and, and neurosurgery. And yet here it was completely failing me to explain my own experience. And then the medical details that emerge of the experience make it crystal clear that you cannot deny the, the medical facts that make it so clear that uh, this thing had wrecked my brain's ability to create any kind of conscious awareness. And yet it did. And that's, again, the proof that the brain is but a filter. And in, in fact, we're, we're conscious in spite of our brain, as my good friend, Dr. Larry Dossie has said. And I, I love that quote. It's uh, very powerful and, and says a lot about what's going on here. But, you know, when you die, your, your conscious awareness is actually expanded tremendously. It's liberated from the shackles of the of the brain and body. So I just want to reiterate that because I said it a few times just in regards to, uh, you know, just having the conversation of, you know, proof of an NDE and proof of the experience. So clinically or scientifically, biologically, however you want to say it, your neocortex, your brain was so damaged that when you were out on a coma, by scientific fact, you should not have been dreaming or have any ability of being aware. Is that, is that correct by the way I'm saying that? Correct. Got it. And in spite of that damage that, you know, on the scan or however you would read it, that you still had this experience. Clearly you have these memories despite that. And that is your thought of something else is going on. Right. Well, that's pretty much it. And well, I mean, the other part of the equation is as a scientist, I've spent 15 years hardcore digging to get the information to help me assemble this package in a scientifically uh, uh, realistic way. And that's why I work with scientificmedical.net and galileocommission.org. And the reality is we are making tremendous progress in coming to a deeper understanding of how all this works. We kind of glanced over the lessons that you've experienced. I know you mentioned uh, taking care of each other and and we're here to learn. Is Are those two... Is that what you've taken from this experience in regards to what the heck we are doing here? Well, it's basically to know thyself. I mean, that's the directive from the Temple of uh, Apollo at Delphi. Know thyself. And once you realize that mind is really the mind of the universe, uh, we're sharing that mind, uh, then you realize, well, if you really want to know yourself, uh, you must understand this deep uh, kind of mental uh, integration that you share with the universe at large. And that ultimately what we find as we dive deep into that uh, process of discovery is that we are united through this uh, consciousness, through our kind of emotional engagement and buy-in to these lives. And I would say that humans can only really kind of perceive what humans can uh, the human brain is still a limiter. Uh, you know, even though we can transcend it and, and go into these realms of primordial mind, as I said earlier, we can't bring it all back. Program forgetting is there for a reason. Uh, and you'll see there are things that we can experience there. I mean, I love how Richard Feynman, uh, you know, the Nobel Prize winner for his work in quantum physics, in his Nobel Prize uh, award speech, he said there's a tremendous amount of truth that can be known and yet is beyond a uh, scientific method uh, for its discovery. So there's a lot of things that he foresaw that we would end up coming to know. And in many ways, that's what I've discovered on this journey. And much of it cannot be dis displayed in language. We can try and share kind of linguistic concepts, but our language is very limited. It's good for describing a trip to Disney World, but it's not very good at describing these incredible spiritual voyages. Uh, and, and in fact, we need to work on new language to help describe all this. Uh, but ultimately, what I came to realize is that you can tell people about your kind of concepts and your experiences till the cows come home, but ultimately their best guide is going to be their own personal experience. And that's why beginning about two years post-coma, I dove into a personal program of daily meditation using a profound technique in the form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment, sacredacoustics.com, for people who want to learn more about it. 
but I've, I've spent these 15 years since the coma uh, working with other scientists around the world to try and make sense of all this. And that involves an integration of quantum physics, neuroscience, philosophy of mind, parapsychology. Uh, I mean, there are many different lines of inquiry that, that support this primacy of mind and our understanding of it. And, and that's where, to me, the scientific world is, is so exciting about all this. Uh, you know, the religious communities had thousands of years to try and teach us the golden rule, to treat others as we would like to be treated. And yet what we find is that is the most primary instruction emerging from the scientific study of consciousness, and especially these exotic human events like uh, near-death experiences. And I will mention the uh, similar shared death experiences, which happen to people who are perfectly normal and healthy physiologically. A shared death is just like near death in terms of, you know, going through tunnels and and witnessing life reviews and uh, feeling that divine God force at the core of the universe, every bit of that. And yet in a shared death experience, the bystander soul comes back to this world. And the bystander soul could be a thousand miles away, for example, from their mother who is leaving the physical world. And yet her soul on the way out passes through and grabs their soul for the journey. I had no idea about shared death experiences when I first started talking about my own experience two and a half years before Proof of Heaven came out. But I had people coming up to me after every talk and saying, I've never told anybody this before, but, and then they'd share a story with me that would change the world. Most of them were near-death experiences or after-death communications. But about one in 20 was what I call shared death. And I came to realize that term was, actually that term was from Raymond Moody. He's the one who gave us near-death experiences in his book, Life After Life in 1975. He wrote a book called Glimpses of Eternity with Paul Perry. I think that book came out in 2011. That book is all about shared death experiences. And now William Peters in Santa Barbara if you, if you Google uh, Shared Crossing Project, you'll find the work of William Peters, who is actually a social worker who's been working in hospice for more than four decades, who is coming up with techniques to help people uh, enhance their possibilities of having a shared death experience with a loved one. So in other words, they're turning the shared death process into a kind of a scientifically studied uh, psychological process that allows people to even witness uh, the ongoing passage of their loved one. And when I think back on all the people who told me the greatest gift their loved one ever gave them was that some something about their passing over or thereafter, an after-death communication that was so strong and powerful that they knew the reality of their ongoing connection with the soul of a departed loved one beyond bodily death. And that was the greatest gift their loved one had ever given them. So that's why this kind of awakening is so important. It, it lets all of us come to have a trust in the universe and to believe through these possibilities, to realize that these stories happen to millions of people, that they can happen to us too. One needs to just get uh, familiar with the literature and start studying this. And BigelowInstitute.org would be an incredibly rich place to start. That gives me a lead into the question, how come people have near-death experiences and why do some not? Well, that's a great question. You know, in the literature, for example, we know that probably 18 to 20 percent, that is roughly one in five people who have a cardiac arrest uh, will end up having a near-death experience. So they're certainly not uncommon. And uh, there was a Gallup poll back in the mid-1990s that estimated 13 million Americans had had a near-death experience. At that time, that would have been 5% of the population. That's probably a reasonable number working forward, although I would say that they are underreported. Uh, people, you know, you go through this, and it's shocking. It's so unexpected and so unpredictable, unless you, you know, are kind of familiar with this uh, territory and this literature, that uh, people don't necessarily want to share it. You know, for me, I tried to share it when I first came back to this world when I had none of my neuroscience knowledge remaining. It had all been deleted through that amnesia. But I tried to tell it my doctors, and they just pat me on the back and say, well, your brain was soaking in pus. We don't even have any idea how you're coming back to us now, but you can forget about it because a dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So I thought, okay, I'll forget about it. Wow, what an amazing thing. In fact, when I told my oldest son, Evan IV, who was majoring in neuroscience in college, 
And he got there two days after I got out of the hospital, day before Thanksgiving, 2008, gave me a big hug. And he told me later, it was like there was this light shining within me, like I was far more present than I'd ever been. But I remember telling him, because my doctors had already coached me, they say, you can forget about it. The dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. And I said, Eben, it was way too real to be real. That was the best way I could phrase it, given my doctor's instruction, that it was completely impossible. But as my neuroscientific knowledge returned, as I reviewed my medical records and realized, no, you didn't, this was not a dream or hallucination. It could not have been. Those parts of your brain were inactivated. That's when I started to take it all much more seriously. And that's why that photograph that I received in the mail four months post-coma that identified that beautiful spiritual guide on the butterfly wing was so earth-shattering for me. Absolutely woke me up to the reality of the journey. And in many ways, there was no way to keep it a secret beyond that point. It was far too big of an experience to go through, especially with my ongoing recovery. You know, I still didn't know that my recovery would end up being more complete than uh, anybody could have anticipated, that my memories were in fact more complete than they had been before coma. That was something revealed to me through very in-depth conversations with family and close friends about long, distant, uh, early past events. So I, I've had a guest on, I've heard stories on the internet based on videos that I posted and other near-death experiences of people that have passed and said, I saw nothing. I saw blackness, nothing happened. This is, this is excuse my language, bullshit. So what do you, what's your response to people that have those experiences that either like A, clinically died and didn't see anything and don't buy into a story like this because of their own experience? It's kind of on the spectrum of someone, sometimes you have to have a near-death experience to anecdotally, you know, believe in this. Um, and then on the flip side, there's people that quote unquote die and see blackness and don't believe in it because of that. Well, to me, it's mainly an issue of memory and whether one has memory of that of those events. Uh, and I must say, by revisiting my own uh, experience, it's become clear to me that a lot doesn't necessarily come back with you. Uh, and I think that's an important thing to get. Now, for the real hardcore doubters out there. What I would do is steer them to the reincarnation literature because that, go to uvadops.org. And once you start realizing that hardcore skeptical scientists have been studying these cases for six plus decades, and, and when you realize the nature of the material, uh, it is so stunning. And so that is absolutely real. You know, the reincarnation stuff, it can be scientifically validated. It's been studied extensively. And if that much is real, then what are we going to say is not uh, real about that in terms of our own journey, in terms of our own kind of continuity of soul uh, beyond bodily death, the uh, continuity of relationships, et cetera, as is revealed uh, through these, uh, these kinds of experiences? Um, I don't know why the memory is not perfect for it. I would tell you that the program Forgetting in many ways, gives a skin in the game. I would just say at this stage, that this stage meaning these few thousand years of human development, it's an important uh, step for us to have this kind of buy-in. And uh, that is why our, those memories, some of those memories are deleted so that children might have memories of past lives and between lives, but by age six or seven, those memories are starting to vanish. And I think that gives us this buy-in that gives us skin in the game to live these lives and learn these lessons. It's all through teaching and learning these deep lessons of love and of connection, of taking care of each other, uh, of facing the challenges in life. I came back to realize that the hardships and difficulties in life are really the gifts. And it's how we face them. Now, our ego mind would never admit to that. But as we develop a relationship through meditation with our higher soul that connects us with that primordial mind, with that God force at the core of the universe, we can start having a kind of a higher perspective, the kind of perspective that can witness uh, various features of our life review, understand how uh, we're all in this together. And if we hurt another, we're hurting ourselves. And uh, so ultimately, we can start learning these lessons through this whole set of processes that we're talking about. But for the time being, it does involve that program forgetting. And that's why most of us don't have these memories. And I'm not sure, uh, maybe it, it just shifts over time how 
common these spiritual experiences are, depending on kind of the cultural zeitgeist and, uh, uh, you know, what, uh, what we're really ready for. And, and I would say that I've come to see that all of this is about the evolution of consciousness itself kind of along the lines of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, his book, The Phenomenon of Man, where he, he wrote this in the mid-20th century. He realized evolution was real. You know, there was a big scientific discussion about Darwinian evolution in the mid-20th century. But he realized as a French paleontologist, that is a scientist paying attention to billion-year timescales, and as a French Jesuit priest, spiritually-minded person, that evolution was much bigger than what they were talking about. And it was all of consciousness evolving throughout the cosmos. That's what I think is going on. That's what I think, you know, just like that old saying, all uh, politics is local. Well, all evolution of consciousness throughout the uh, cosmos is, is local in the form of being nothing more than sentient beings coming to a deeper understanding of their own relationship with the universe at large. That know thyself at the oracle at the temple of uh, Apollo and Delphi. Uh, and knowing thyself is this much bigger knowledge because the mind of the universe is the one we all share. The brain serves as a filter, a transceiver, but it is not the ultimate producer of that conscious awareness. And it's also not the ultimate repository of memory. That we discuss in detail in that book, Living in a Mind for Universe. So it's really about a scientific revolution that can be very liberating and refreshing when you realize the benefits of admitting to our spiritual nature and sense of connectedness uh, can be very refreshing and liberating to us living these lives, facing these hardships, and yet trying to uh, learn and teach as best we can that relationship with the universe that comes into view. So what is the ultimate goal of what we're doing here and the idea of reincarnation that we're, you know, we're going to return back? When do we rest? <laughs> what, what is the ultimate goal of all this? Well, I think it's ultimately becoming one with that divine creative force and basically uh, feeling the love of the creator for the creation as we are co-creators with that God force and as we evolve and realize the higher good is the goal and the more we can manifest love of others, taking care of the least, the last, the lost, the refugees in this world. Uh, you know, the, the people who are thrown out by society, the more we can come to their aid and help all souls to rise up in this uh, beautiful adventure we call life, that's when we're starting to grow, starting to learn these deeper lessons. And I think that's when we will actually join a much larger club. Because from my point of view, uh, this is all really about the massive, uh, what I would say, uh, uh, obvious uh, uh, kind of spacefaring civilization of, of of loving beings, because I think that uh, you know other civilizations are playing a role now in our emergence. And yet, when I look at uh, Homo sapiens, you know, sapiens means wise. Well, I think we're we've jumped the gun a little bit on that one. And yes, there is a lot of wisdom in the science of say medical science or uh, communications uh, of transportation, etc. And yet, when I look at scientific progress in the last uh, few centuries, I also see our addiction to fossil fuels, corporate greed in the energy industry, climate change out of control, threatened extinction of millions of species. I mean, to me, the dark, ugly underbelly of scientific uh, growth in the last few centuries uh, kind of outweighs some of the benefits, and we're uh, threatening this planet with extinction. That is why this awakening is very timely and needs to happen right now, and I believe it is. I believe as that scientist at the neuroscience meeting in 2018 pointed out in 2012, proof of heaven was associated with a fourfold increase in the number of, of uh, scientific studies of near-death experiences in the world's literature. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't know if uh, proof of heaven was causal or it was just uh, good timing. But the reality is the world is changing. The scientific community is coming to realize that you've either studied this data or you continue to ignore it. There are scientists out there like Sean Carroll. Uh, I debated him in 2014 in Intelligence Squared. And he's a brilliant physicist, and yet he has no clue what is going on with uh, this uh, evidence of, of the reality of spirit and of spirituality and of how it explains our nature much better than materialism does. And uh, so it's really just time for people to study the data. Bigelowinstitute.org is an excellent starting point, but there's a tremendous amount of scientific data beyond that uh, to help people in the study. But once you dive into it, you realize materialist scientists are hopeless 
mostly lost in their ignorance. Uh, but there <laughs> is a, a bright and a refreshing future for humanity to come to a deeper understanding of our spiritual nature and the truth of the eternity of soul. Oof. And there's so much there. I th- you know, I, I think it's, uh, sorry, it reminds me, have you ever heard of a book called The Celestine Prophecy? I do remember that one, yeah, from now, many remember, years ago. I may be paraphrasing this or butchering this. I've never this. read the whole thing. From my understanding, once again, if anyone's read it, I'm torturing this idea of the book. Uh, please ignore me. But from what I took from the book, it, it seems to be, you know, it was prophesizing that, you know, humanity is kind of shifting into the, asking the question again of why and, and and get back to more philosophical roots and understanding who we are and why we're here. And there was a little bit of a halt when it comes to innovation, industrial revolution. I mean, timing might be off, but we kind of were to, always focused on, on on innovating and moving us forward uh, here on earth. And we kind of forgot to ask the question, uh, maybe from a religious standpoint and asking the question why. And it kind of just reminded me of what you're saying is as, you know, a collectiveness maybe it is an important time to start asking that question why, and perhaps we're kind of like lost as a humanity in many ways for better or for worse. So I think that is an interesting thought of how science is, seems to be, you know, trending towards that direction of being more open to bridging the gap between, you know, science and spirituality. You know, I had a guest of, uh, Bruce Lipton, who was one of the guests and you know, um, Biology of Belief was a, one of my favorite books as well. And he, for a long time, was trying to bridge that gap. And he even said how it, it starts to be, it's becoming more accepted. Right. Well, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, from a scientific perspective, uh, uh, for the hardcore scientists out there, I would recommend the books of Edward Kelly from University of Virginia, Division of Perceptual Studies, Irreducible Mind, Beyond Physicalism, and Consciousness Unbound. Those three books are the three, from my perspective, strongest scientific arguments for the reality of kind of evolutionary panentheism is the bottom line, going beyond idealism and really seeing kind of the uh, living nature of that God force. So uh, no question the scientific world is shifting on this very dramatically. Yeah, you're clearly a major part of it. So before we bow out of here, I just have one question that was on my mind. What about before? If we're talking about a creator, regardless of identifying it to a specific God or this or that, the creator, the universe, what is your thought on before? Is there is there a before? You know what I mean? Like, where did this all truly begin, and what the hell was the creator doing before that? <laughs> well, I think there definitely was a before, and, and I would say this is the important thing of understanding that difference in time flow between Earth time and that deep time or meta time and I talked about in that spiritual realm, is that's a whole different ordering of causality that can completely contain, you know, birth to death and any other kind of beginning to end, uh, apparently in this universe, uh, contained in that universe. So in other words, our very thinking of time and causality and a before and an after doesn't make as much sense when we realize that there are other temporal dimensions involved. And at this junction, I would point out the absolute importance of understanding the fine-tuning nature of the universe. This is something that's very challenging uh, to modern science. That is that, you know, the 26 fundamental constants of the universe, like speed of light and magnetic moment and all these different constants of physical reality— Nobody understands why they are exactly what they are, but what people do understand is if they varied by even a fraction of a percent from their values, that life would not exist in this universe. You wouldn't have planets, you wouldn't have stars, you wouldn't have bodies, you wouldn't have atoms. There are many different ways that it would not work. But the astonishing thing, it's called the fine-tuning of the universe. And to me, now the way that some of modern science tries to address that is they simply say infinite parallel universes. So one of them's bound to have constituents that are okay for life. But we don't know that there are these other universes out there. All we know is this universe exists. And when you look at it, it really is astonishing how fine-tuned all those constant and parameters are to allow for us to exist. And that is a very strong argument for the reality of a true intelligence behind the design. And as I said, we share the mind of the universe. That God force is the one that, that's what people in NDEs come in touch with. That's what they identify with. That's why they come back to this world not fearing death. Uh, And so as we start to expand our notions of what that uh, kind of unified intelligence that we all seem to share that seems to pre-exist us, 
you know, that is where the action is. And that's where I think we can find a tremendous amount of knowledge by uh, cultivating our relationship with that primordial mind. Yeah. And what I took from a lot of this, which I kind of already understood was, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of literature. There's a lot of studies out there. There's a lot of, like, beyond just stories, you know, I, I think that's an important lesson to take from this besides the, the actual lessons of what the hell heck we're doing here. But uh, I think I think that's a really important place. And I'm going to share some of those links that you mentioned because I'm curious to even dive into that more. And uh, I, I feel like there are a lot of people that don't even want to ask the question when it comes here based on, I know, I wonder if fear is a driver of that, you know what I mean, or, or of of someone's stance on whether this exists or doesn't exist. It's not to ask the question. That's my opinion on a lot of this stuff, regardless of what I believe, even though I'm a believer in all this. And like you said, a lot you offer a lot of uh, way more objective stances on this experience. I think it's important to ask that question. And I think that relates to where we are in the humanity. And you said how we should, you know, wake up a little bit. And I think that starts with asking these questions and just considering that this may be a possibility. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I think your story is truly incredible. And before and before we bow out here, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of, as they say, say some last words. Um, I, I'm assuming, I don't want to assume, I take that back. Are you not fearful of death? No, I, I look at it as a tremendous adventure. Now, I'm not in a big hurry to get there because I think I still have things to do on this world. I still have two sons uh, that I'm very... Uh, involved with in their lives and friends and family. And, uh, uh, you know, my life partner, Karen Newell, and I, I feel like we're doing some important work for the world. Uh, But when that time comes, it'll be an incredible adventure. Uh, And I also realize that our soul connections do end up preserving kind of soul groups between lifetimes. So we might switch roles and switch genders and switch all kinds of things. But I think our soul groups kind of keep working together. So... Uh, I think the most important thing, I would encourage people to stay in touch with me through Eben, E-B-E-N, Alexander.com. Learn more about the meditation at sacredacoustics.com. Also a great resource uh, for many interviews that we did during the pandemic with thought leaders around the world. Those interviews are available at inner, I-N-N-E-R, sanctumcenter.com. Uh, and I would remind people that, that no soul left behind, this revolution in understanding is one that can benefit each and every one of us. And it's a very exciting time to be alive. So I'd strongly encourage people to start developing a regular practice of meditation uh, and start bringing those beautiful lessons of love into your life, living in the here and now and helping this world to wake up to a much greater truth. Oh boy. Okay. It's a heck of a start to start my day. I want to thank you so much for this. This is, uh, uh, it's, it's truly remarkable, your story. And I, this is a very unique and interesting conversation for me selfishly. So besides the fact that I, I'm happy my audience got to hear this for anyone that may or may not have known you, um, I'm truly grateful for you to take this opportunity to speak with me. And, uh, I hope I didn't make anything more confusing by my layman understanding of all this. <laughs> oh, David, you did a great job. It was a great interview. Thanks so much. I appreciate what you're doing to get this out there.